Death and the awful abode of lost souls, whither my weakness long ago had sent him, had changed for every other eye but mine. And now I heard his voice, rising, swelling, thundering through the flaring light. And as I fell, the radiance increasing, increasing, poured over me in waves of flame. Then I sank into the depths, and I heard the king in yellow whispering to my soul, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All right. Uh, look, if you've been listening to Elder Sign for a while, then you know how much I absolutely love The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. It is going to be a long time, probably never really, before the mask is unseated from my list of favorite stories that we've covered. And so I'm very excited to take a minute here at the top of the show to let all of you know about an Indiegogo campaign to adapt the first four stories of the cycle into an independent feature film. Uh, And in fact, these are the four stories that we have covered so far on the show. It's a very cool project. It's very long overdue. And I personally can't wait to see a cinematic adaptation of just the sheer creepiness of the story, The Yellow Sign. So I hope you'll check it out. Hope you'll consider backing the film. You can find it on Indiegogo.com just by searching for The King in Yellow. But you can also much more easily just use the link in the show notes that I've got there for you. So check it out. Back the film. This is going to do a lot of work to bring this really awesome story cycle to much bigger attention. Uh, Spread the word about Robert W. Chambers. And also, it's going to help us usher in the reign of the benevolent monarch, Hildred Castain, that much more quickly. And uh, that's a world, I think, we all want to live in. Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be covering a Dan Simmons short story called The River Sticks Runs Upstream. This story was originally published in 1982. And this story was nominated by a listener, a listener who won the review writing contest that we did actually last year. That contest, that was a huge help to us. This is where we encouraged listeners to write reviews of all of our shows across the network on the, the platform or, or, you know, platforms of their choice. A lot of people did that. And it really helped us get a lot of exposure, helped us uh, really start to make the algorithms, the recommendation algorithms on the podcasting apps work for us, uh, and particularly the search functions. And that was really awesome. So we want to say a huge thank you to everyone who participated in that. Yeah, thank you so much. And I I just want to take a moment here to let our audience know that we're going to continue to hammer on you to write reviews if you haven't already. (laughs) Uh, Because as Glenn said, it helps us uh, get found by new or potential listeners. We're really aiming to grow the podcast network. We want to grow. We want to reach a wider audience. And writing reviews is one small way that you can help us do that. So if you haven't written a review, I don't know, pause the show right now, bang out a review for us real quick, and come back and listen to this episode uh, where we talk about a dance, an early Dan Simmons uh, short story. Yeah, we are continuing to incentivize the, the writing of reviews with this goal that we've got of getting to 100 reviews on Apple. Podcast. So if you're using an iPhone uh, and you're listening to us on an iPhone right now, you can really, you don't even actually have to pause to write a review. You just type it on in your thumbs. It doesn't 
have to say anything other than this show is good. Five stars. That's fine. But the incentive is that when we get to 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts, we will do a bonus series uh, for everyone on H.P. Lovecraft's novella, The Call of Cthulhu. I I think we would do five or six episodes on that. And that would be on top of the regularly scheduled episodes. And uh, I'd be really excited to do that. So I hope that people will help us out with that. And yeah, let's uh, let's turn our attention now to this story. Dan Simmons is a really important figure, I think, in uh, the 1980s and the 1990s in speculative fiction, uh, really across genres, uh, both science fiction and supernatural horror, just really a giant uh, in the field in the 1980s and the 1990s. So I was really excited when uh, our listener who won the review writing contest picked this story, his first professional sale to have us take a look at. And it's a good one. It is really good. I, I enjoyed it a whole lot. Dan Simmons, many of our listeners know him from you know his horror fiction, his speculative fiction, um, but he also wrote a, a, a mini series, I guess you'd call it, a, dete- a hard-boiled detective series as well of novels. So he was just writing everything in, in the 80s and 90s and just, I don't know, he was probably on one of those 18-month contracts. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I think I read somewhere on his blog ages ago that that's that's what he got. He got a publishing contract. He had to bank something out every 18 months. So that's what he did. And uh, he wrote some excellent science fiction novels, a ton of short stories, and uh, also managed to publish some hard-boiled detective fiction as well. Right. Well, those are faster to write. <laughs> they're, like, they're much shorter, right? I mean, the, Hi- the, the Hyperion books are twice as long as his detective novels. So that's how you honor that 18-month contract, I think, right. is to uh, turn into thriller, right? <laughs> Which I would love to do someday. I, I was a real big Dan Simmons fan in the, the 1990s and maybe the, the early 2000s, maybe especially when I was in the army. I read just so much Dan Simmons and then have not kept up with him since. I know he's got several novels that I have not read. The most recent of his books that I've read are these sort of weird weird future science fiction retellings of the Iliad, (laughs) which are really great. But that was the the last Dan Simmons that uh, I read. And that was, you know, 15 years ago or so, maybe even more than that at this point. So it would be interesting to see what he's up to now. Check him out. Maybe that's something we can go do over on ATOS. But we need to do this story first. So uh, Brandon, why don't you get us into the recap here? Simmons opens this story with an epigram taken from Ezra Pound's Cantos, and and here's what it says. What thou lovest well remains, the rest is dross. What thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee. What thou lovest well is thy true heritage. So that opens the story. That's the epigram. Yeah, I think most people are familiar with Ezra Pound because he's actually quite super controversial and he's in this story uh, a lot. Uh, well, you know, he supplies the epigram here and then uh, one of the characters in this story uh, is, is going to you know, turn out to be a, a scholar on Ezra Pound, although the question of how much that actually matters to the story is maybe something we'll take up in the discussion. But Ezra Pound, famous today, I think, largely because he's super controversial. He's, he's really often credited with being one of the instigators of literary modernism. But he was also a raging fascist uh, and was even charged with treason against the United States at the end of the Second World War, following which he was sent to live in a mental hospital for over a decade because he was deemed unfit to stand trial. So he was effectively imprisoned for treason without ever having stood trial for for treason. Uh, And then he eventually was released and went 
back to live in Italy. That's where he had been active as a, as a fascist and then uh, died there, I believe. But his poetry is really widely read today. And, and what these verses are doing here, of course, right, is, is really just setting us up for the theme of holding on to something you love. So that's what we're going to be wanting to look for in this story. Right. Ezra Pound was also a, a none too quiet anti-Semite as well, uh, or at least that's kind of how he's, he's thought of today. And uh, for me, my Ezra Pound, if we're going to have one, is the one who edited The Wasteland. And uh, right. and if you read Eliot's original drafts of that, which is far longer than the, than the poem became, you really see Ezra Pound's genius as an editor come through uh, in, in that process of the going back and forth in the different drafts of The Wasteland uh, by T.S. Eliot. So, he, you know, he, he is very important in uh, modernism and uh, really was an astoundingly good poetry editor and a, a pretty good poet himself. Uh, so that's also, that's the other side of Ezra Pound. Uh, yeah. you know, that, those were his <laughs> earlier days. Well, the story really opens with the narrator, whose name I don't think we ever get in this story, reflecting upon his mother, who died when he was eight. And really what he's doing is recalling the day of his mother's funeral about how after she was buried, the family went home and waited for her return. The narrator dressed up for this occasion, as I think any any child would or would be forced to, as seems to be the case here. And the narrator remembers that the weather was just too nice for the day to be spent at a funeral. And he remembers that his uncle, Will, was drunk as usual. But it really does open with him thinking about going home and and waiting for his mother's return. And when the narrator gets home, he goes to play in his sandbox and on his swing set. And he speculates here about what, quote, they, you know, the they, who we don't know who they are yet, are going to do in order to revive his mother. He wonders what parts of her will come alive first, her eyes, her fingers, Will she be more like a mannequin now? Are they dressing her the way shopkeepers dress their mannequins? And, and all this is very confusing. We don't really know what's going on. But eventually, the narrator's brother, Simon, comes out to get the narrator because it's almost time for his mother's arrival. Simon is two years older than the narrator, so he's 10. And the two boys here Uncle Will shouting at their father when they come in the house, and they kind of hide and listen. Uncle Will is pleading with the boy's father not to do this. He wants the father to think about the boys and think about how much money he's spending, how much it's going to cost to keep the mother. It's 25% of everything the father has or, or, and potentially will earn. But the father isn't open to hearing any arguments or pleading from Uncle Will. All the father says is, it's done. This is a word of finality. Nothing is going to change the father's mind. So the boys go to the kitchen. They want to stay out of the adult's way. There's also other kind of visitors there, other family members who have come to pay their respects. So the boys have gone to the kitchen, they get a Coke, and then Uncle Will leaves. But the narrator tells us, Uncle Will never enters their home again. This opening is awesome. I mean, just some really gorgeous writing. The The opening line is, 
I loved my mother very much. And then just boom, right? That's what the story is going to be about. You called attention to the fact that Simmons is, is splicing all of these thoughts that the narrator is having about what is happening to his mother right now. We're splicing that into the narrative of what he's actually doing. Those thoughts are all in italics. That's a really nice way to set that aside. To And, and they're just in whole paragraphs, right? Whole paragraphs, that are just a few sentences long, although the paragraphs here are pretty short, that are italicized. And it's a really great cadence. It's a really great rhythm. There also are just some really awesome images here. So I'll, you alluded to this one. You, you mentioned this one, Brandon. I'll just read it verbatim the way that Simmons has. He writes, do her fingers twitch first or do her eyes just slide open like an owl waking up? And that is uh, that, that is a haunting image, this, this owl's eyes image, right? Thinking about that's what is happening with his mother right now, you know, shortly after their funeral. Just what a what a beautiful image. Uh, the the second paragraph in the story is also, I think, really just phenomenal. It repeats the phrases I remember and I recall several times. It really grounds us in the idea that this story is an adult reflecting on a childhood experience and also lending, I think, a poetical cadence to the the start of the story as well. There's a lot of cadence, a lot of poetical cadence, I think, actually, to the opening of this story. And it's really, really phenomenal. But then Simmons takes us through what it is like to be a kid at a funeral, right? Not knowing what you're supposed to do, not knowing how you're supposed to act, having the sense that there are unspoken rules that everyone knows except you. And of course, the adults are not helping you know what they are or understand them. And Simmons has really captured that here. And also the feeling that people peripheral in your life are staring at you in, you know, now in this moment of, of tragedy. And of course, that's not a metaphor in this story. In this story, they, they literally are doing that. They really are doing that here. And it's because of what we are going to learn about the digging up of the mother in the next section. Yeah, the, the way I'm kind of approaching recapping this story is not perhaps going to make it clear enough to those who haven't read it that this is actually a horror story. <laughs> um, <that> like The <laughs> ideas are horrible. It's told with such beautiful prose and with such uh, like gentleness or even meekness that that's the tone I'm trying to capture. The horror stuff, though, is very present in this story. I also want to say, Glenn, regarding, you pointed out this kind of use of italics uh, to point out the internal thoughts of the child. Dan Simmons does this technique the right way here. You know, there are dozens, uh, if not hundreds, maybe even thousands of novels that use italics to do exposition as the main character, the protagonist of the novel is like thinking to himself about how clever he is. I know Glenn, you and I used to go read like Dan Brown novels aloud oh, yeah. to one another in bookstores <laughs> that are just full <laughs> of, of this technique. This is the example. If you're tempted to use that style in your own writing, this is the way to do it. Not the Dan Brown way. Right. Uh, think, Sophie, think. Grandpere must be trying to tell you something. It's a, it's a phrase that you and I have giggled over at, at the uh, Barnes & Noble in Denver that yep. uh, used to stay open all night because it had a coffee shop, an all-night coffee shop attached to it. I will never forget that line. And it's terrible, terrible use of uh, internal italicized monologue that usually is something I just 
doctrinally say no one should ever do. And so I'm glad you're pointing out that uh, I'm being a bit of a hypocrite here in praising and praising Dan Simmons for doing it. But you're right. Dan Simmons is doing it right. Most of us can't do it right. So I think probably the real writing advice is just don't do it at all because you're probably not going to do it right. But if you are going to do it, follow this example. Yeah, that that's the point I'm trying to make. Well, it's night uh, of the day of the funeral. And we are, as, as you emphasize, Glenn, here, we are in the recollections of, of a grown person remembering this event. So that night, the they, and this is where we find out who they are. These are people who are called the resurrectionists. They bring mother home. And very few family members are still at the house. Aunt Helen is there. Uh, but it's generally just a very emotional moment. The men take the mother from the car. And though the narrator wants to rush out to greet her, uh, Simon holds him back. This refrain of, I loved my mother very much, uh, the narrator loving his mother, really comes through the story both in the expressions, explicit expressions of the narrator, but also moments like these. So Simon holds the narrator back, and the narrator watches his mother walk with a little help from the men to the house. The mother doesn't look waxy as she did when she was being prepared for her burial. Uh, rather, she looks flush and healthy. She is wearing makeup, though, and that's something she never used to do. So this flush and, and healthy look are maybe just the result of the makeup. The father cries when he sees her and he and he kisses her cheek. And the boys come up and greet her. Uh, Simon is really reticent and shy, but the narrator just dives right in. He hugs her and he kind of pounces on her and he kisses her on the lips. And while all this is happening in the background, the family German Shepherd is just freaking out. <laughs> they have to put him outside. Once these greetings are over, the father and the resurrectionists head into the study to have a private conversation. And this is obviously the type of conversation that children love to overhear, just like they listen to the fighting of their father and uncle Will. The resurrectionists are trying to lay down some expectations. They say, treat her like she's just had a light stroke or like she just came home from the hospital. In other words, she's fragile. She's not quite herself. Maybe she's lost some of her capabilities. They make sure that the father understands about the tithe, as they call it, the 25% that he has to pay them. I suppose this is monthly. But the father isn't as interested in any of this as the resurrectionists are, though. He wants to know how long the mother, his wife, will be, I don't know, undead in an acceptable way. No concrete language, I should say, is really given to us to explain the mother's condition. They all talk around the situation and never address it directly with firm language. And that really gives us a sense that this whole situation is taboo. And we'll learn that it is kind of in a broader societal sense, but the mother coming home is fairly disruptive to the household. The father sleeps in his study after a few nights and he starts drinking heavily like their alcoholic uncle. The mother seems to have no real aut autonomy. She wears what the father tells her and does what he tells her to do. She occasionally, though, wanders around the forest preserve that borders the house. And that's where the boys really used to play a lot, but they don't 
that much anymore because it's eerie now with the mom wandering around. And speaking of eerie, the boys begin to realize that the mother doesn't blink ever. And all of this disruption is causing actually everyone to have a hard time sleeping. So on some nights, the father reads from Ezra Pound's Cantos to the boys. We have this weird tag section here about the 4th of July. So we moved from June, now we're in July, and one of the children's schoolmates drowns in a swimming pool. And then we get a scene about everyone watching the fireworks and how the fireworks, the reflection seem to just like drip down the mother's face. And then soon after this, the narrator finds a dead squirrel in the forest preserve. And it's obvious that this squirrel has been killed by something or someone. And and Simmons' description of the narrator coming upon the squirrel here is is a great example of the descriptive horror writing in the story. So I want to read a little bit of that here. The squirrel was large and reddish and had been dead for some time. The head had been wrenched around almost backwards on the body. Blood had dried near one ear. Its left paw was clenched, but the other lay open on a twig as if it were resting there. Something had taken one eye, but the other stared blackly at the canopy of branches. Its mouth was open slightly, showing surprisingly large teeth gone yellow at the roots. As I watched, an ant came out of the mouth, crossed the dark muzzle, and walked out onto the staring eye. So it's just horrifying. And I don't know, maybe we can connect two and two here and suggest that perhaps the mother is the one who who killed this squirrel. Yeah, I want to talk about that. This this part of the story, we're, we're, we're in Act 2 now, right? And Simmons is spending Act 2 really building up a sense of dread. Uh, the mother... I mean, she's just creepy. She's staring out the window at the fireworks, or she's standing in the dark and staring at an empty bed. The dog, this German shepherd, is agitated all the time, keeps running off and and won't come in the house. And then, yeah, we get this squirrel, this dead squirrel that has had some violence done to it. I don't actually think that the mother killed the squirrel, but that's only because I've read the whole story, because definitely encountering this for the first time, my first read through, I was certain that she had. Uh, I was also then certain that this was going to be a story about how she kills some of her family. Uh, and like maybe the narrator is the only one of the the three of them to make it out alive. And well, actually, from a certain point of view, it turns out that that is going to be what the story is, but not in the way that Simmons is, is setting up here. It is kind of, I think, a, a red herring, but it works so well to build up this sense of dread. I mean, I just had goosebumps. My heart was racing. Like, I, I had to actively tell myself to slow down and read the story. I just because I at this point, I wanted to flip through so fast just to find out what was going to happen. It's really masterful. It's amazing. And this narrator is actually deeply fascinated with death. We'll encounter uh, at least one, if not two more situations in what really is a 10 or 12 page story where the narrator just remembers about people dying. And this is perhaps an intrusion of the man putting this in the story because of his fascination with death and the, and the kind of chilling end to this to this tale. We're going to have to think about the narrator when we get to the discussion today, for sure. I want to go back to the, the really the second scene of this story where we're getting 
really the world building done for us. And Simmons is doing some top-notch world building in this story. When the, the resurrectionists come to their house with the, the mother, Simmons gives us all of that just really so subtly, right? He deploys the term resurrectionist. It's, it's a, a capital R, it's a proper noun, but he uses it only twice. He then also very subtly uses the word tithe, which is kind of creepy, right? It lets us know that there's something religious going on here, but he does a lot of showing here without telling. He doesn't explain any of this to us. So it's totally up to us to make inferences here. In fact, one of the things that we really get that I, I love here is a description of what it's like in the mornings after the mother has gotten home is that uh, their dad is grumpy in the mornings and it's because he's not sleeping at night up in their bedroom and the reason that he's not sleeping at night in their bedroom is because hey the reanimated corpse of his wife is there with him and it's disturbing him he can't sleep there but simmons doesn't spell that out for us he just shows us two things and lets us infer the the connection between them and that is really well done it is this is a this is a gorgeously <laughs> written and crafted <laughs> story <laughs> Well, time is marching forward for the narrator through his childhood recollections. And it's the school year now. And and after a little while in their old school, the father moves them to a private school because they have been bullied. They've been marked out as resurrectionists. And one night at home, uh, as Simon is doing homework, he's staying up late. The, the narrator finds his mother in their bedroom, just in the dark. She's just there. But the narrator isn't shocked or frightened by this. In fact, he's, I don't know, glad. He he tries to have a conversation with her, but she doesn't really respond. Now it's Thanksgiving, and the father has decided to put the dog down because uh, it, it turns out that dogs hate living in houses with undead things, basically. <laughs> <laughs> What's more, though, here is that the father is just un- unraveling. He can't work anymore as a professor. So he takes a sabbatical to work on his book, but he doesn't actually work on it. He just drinks and watches TV. Simon starts having nightmares as well. And around this time, he dreams a recurring dream that he's in bed And he knocks one of his comic books off of his nightstand onto the floor. And when he puts his hand down to grab it, the mother reaches out from under the bed and grabs his wrist and and tries to pull Simon into the darkness with her. And this dream gets worse to the point where he sees his mother slide out from under the bed like she's, she's on a mechanic's wheel thing. I don't know what those things are called. I I bet the word is actually in the text. Um, But she comes out (laughs) from under the bed and he sees her face and her mouth. And in her mouth, her teeth have been filed down to sharp points. And Simon asks the narrator if he has nightmares about the mother. And the narrator says that he doesn't have dreams like this because he loves his mother. This is kind of a shocking remark, I think. Then we get a brief aside again about some neighborhood kids, some some twins who locked themselves in an abandoned freezer and suffocated. Well, now it's Labor Day and Simon wants to run away. He convinces the narrator to go along with this plan. And the plan is this. Grab up all the rations we can. We're going to camp out with some supplies and we're going to go to Uncle Will's place and stay there for a little while 
And then Uncle Will's going to take them to his ranch in the spring, and we're just going to work as farmhands. And Simon has really thought of everything, too. He's even brought a nice piece of clothesline to hang clothes or a tarp or a blanket on or whatever. You know, you, you never go camping without some kind of rope. It's just just a basic rule. <laughs> uh, so the boys get away, and they camp near the creek, and the sounds that the creek makes, the burbling sounds gurgling too, I suppose, remind the narrator of the sounds that he heard coming from his mother's room the night that she died. Anyway, the boys make a kind of makeshift lean-to with the clothesline and blankets. They hang it up between some trees and they sleep on the ground. In the middle of the night, the narrator wakes up. He can't see anything because it's dark, but he imagines his mother is coming for them through the forest and maybe more she's coming like to get them to bring them home in some neutral sense but there's definitely dark imagery here and he imagines that she's walking and there are just sharp twigs brushing at her eyes and this image kind of recalls the same sense of numbness that the dead squirrel had with the ant crawling on its eye but whatever's out there isn't their mother maybe nothing's out there it's just true darkness and when the morning comes, the narrator convinces Simon that they should really just go home. And they do, but Simon really would have kept going, if not for his brother. And when they get home, no one even notices that they were gone. And the narrator goes down to the basement and announces to the darkness, where his mother is now, that they ran away, but they came back, and that it was his idea to come back. Yeah, this scene is is really amazing. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking, the scene, really. Simon clearly wants out at this point, but not just for himself, right? He he wants to he wants to rescue his brother from what is so obviously a terrible situation, though the narrator doesn't see it that way. I think objectively, this is a terrible situation. Simon sees it that way, and he wants to get not just himself, but his brother out of there as well. But really, Simon has had to become a parent, even though he himself is still only a kid, right? He's 11 at the most at this point. It is obviously too much for him, even though he is quite clever. He, he came up with, I think, a very good plan for them to get to their uncle's house without being caught, uh, avoiding roadways and, and, and so on. And he's turned just the regular stuff in their house, stuff that they have at their disposal, into pretty decent summertime backpacking gear. Uh, you know, I think it's actually really quite resourceful of just this 10 or 11-year-old kid to, to do this. Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, Simon is really trying to escape the situation. Just hearing from your little brother that the reason you're having nightmares is because you don't love mom enough, I think would push anybody over the edge and make you feel like there's something really wrong with you. And you're right. Simon's plan is awesome. Even though Uncle Will's an alcoholic, well, so is their dad now. And at least Uncle Will has a place where they can like work and be with a family. So Simon has really kind of thought this through and he's he's ready to get out of there. Right. And what we know about Uncle Will, I guess, is that he has a, a ranch somewhere or works on a ranch somewhere. And, and Simon's plan is that he and his brother, the, the narrator, are going to go with Uncle Will when he seasonally goes to the, the ranch to, to work. I feel like they're in New Jersey here in this story. So I don't know where this ranch is, but like two time zones away, I, I imagine. And so this this almost they were so close. They were, you know, steps away, I think, from uh, the exact plot of Jack London's life here, which, uh, as <laughs> right. it turns out, 
that would have that would have been a better ending for uh, for this family for sure. I, I do. Before we move on, I want to I just want to pause and admire some of the writing again. Here, you did a great job of walking us through this this passage here, Brandon, about the darkness. But I just want to read it because it is so freaking good. I sat up with my heart pounding. There was nothing to see when I moved my head near the opening, but I knew exactly what was out there. I put my head under my jacket and moved away from the side of the tent. I waited for something to touch me through the blanket. At first, I thought of Mother coming after us, of Mother walking through the forest after us with sharp twigs brushing at her eyes. But it wasn't Mother. The night was cold and heavy around our little tent. It was as black as the eye of that dead squirrel, and it wanted in. For the first time in my life, I understood that the darkness did not end with the morning light. And that that's it. Nothing happens. There is no action in that. He's describing absolutely nothing happening there. And it is scary. And it is beautiful. This is this is the best horror writing there is, I think. I, I think so, too. I mean, Dan Simmons is is a genuine master of horror. Well, we didn't mention this at the top of the show, but one of his uh, more recent novels, I suppose, published in the past 15 years, it's been adapted to a, a TV show called The Terror. And that's gotten that's become an anthology series. But uh Man, just based on his skills as a horror writer, I, I hope he's getting uh, royalties for their continued use of the title, <laughs> at least, even though they're not continuing to adapt his, his horror work. Well, the story continues on here. It's after Labor Day, and the father says, you know what would be really nice? You know what we really need? A family vacation. So they take a trip to the beach with Aunt Helen, and Aunt Helen has to be, I think, his wife's sister. It's his, it's his in-law, sister-in-law. So everyone packs in the car and the kids are in the back seat with their mother because Aunt Helen is in the front seat and Simon is very uncomfortable. Uh, the family finds a hotel that is welcoming to resurrectionist families, but it's a real rat trap, like literally. And on the first day, everyone but Simon just stays inside and watches TV all day. But eventually, everyone does head out to the beach in the evening. And and this sort of implies that they wouldn't be welcome on the beach during the daytime. So they just hide out until the, the family crowds, the living family crowds, clear out. The narrator tries to make his mother comfortable on the beach as best he can, but eventually just gets irritated with his father's voice. And he goes off to find Simon, who has been gone like for hours at this point. And maybe also he wants to eat a hot dog. And while the narrator's away, he kind of looks back at the family blanket and he sees his father and Aunt Helen and his mother. And his father steals a quick kiss with Aunt Helen. I mean, he kisses Aunt Helen on the cheek. We don't know if it's reciprocal or not, but it implies something that I don't know if we can draw out fully. Something certainly disturbing about this kiss uh, for the narrator. And Something about this also makes the mother get up and wander away. So she's gone now, too. And this is just too much for the narrator to handle. So he walks up the beach, quote, past the place where the two teenagers had drowned the previous weekend. And he sees that there are other resurrectionist families out now, too. But it's getting late, and the narrator decides to head back to the family blanket uh, because he hasn't found his mother or Simon. But he sees what he thinks is movement under the boardwalk, and it catches his attention. So he goes to investigate and imagines that he sees dozens of coffins stacked up and kind of lapping against the boardwalk here. 
But it's not his mother that he sees. It's something else. He looks up and something is turning in the shadows. Someone has climbed up and is now hanging beneath the boardwalk. And what their narrator really recognizes is the clothesline that this person used for a noose. It's Simon. And after Simon's death, the family basically disintegrates. The father quits his job, and the narrator is sent to a school two states away. Uh, In my reading here, it, it seems like a school that's run by the resurrectionists. And later on, he gets a full scholarship to go to the university again. I think this is a college specifically for resurrectionists, and he rarely visits home. His father's just become a full-blown alcoholic, and he's got these broken blood vessels all over his face, and he looks like he wears more makeup than the narrator's mother does. Three days before his graduation from university, the narrator gets a call from a woman who tells him that the father has slit his wrists, and he's done it properly. The narrator remarks that the father has read his Plutarch. The narrator heads home to deal with the estate, and he just burns all of his father's work. But the resurrectionists have done their part. They have honored their agreement with the narrator's family, broken as it is. And what's more, the narrator's in a really good place now. He really loves his career. It's more than a job to him. He's convinced uh, his the organization he works for to open up some new neighborhood centers in, in old, empty schools. And he's also saved up enough money to buy his old house back. And he's restored it just the way that it was when he was a kid. And once he's done work for the day, he doesn't go and hang out with his workmates and grab a beer. He cleans the steel tables at his job and he heads straight home because his family is there. They're waiting for him. And that's the end of the story. Yeah. Wow. This, this ending is, is tough. I mean, this was, uh, this was actually a really hard story for me to, to just close the book on and, and then like, go about the, the rest of my day as if nothing had happened. And I think that's a, a real testament to Simmons's writing that this story felt like it happened to me and I was genuinely in pain because of it. It's an absolutely heartbreaking story. I mean, the implication here at the end is that Simon's love for his mother uh, and his, I don't know, need to offer that to other people have given him a career resurrecting dead people. And it's like this resurrectionist movement has had some real impact on society because schools are closing. I mean, there's just a lot to take in here at the end of the story. And and it's very dark. It's very strange. And while the narrator is fulfilled and has a fulfilling life, we know as readers that everything is, is broken and torn and kind of can't be restored. Yeah, all all of the questions that I have, I don't have very many. Everything I guess that that I want to do in the discussion here is about the world is is to to look at the the horrific thing that Simmons has invented here that he's introduced to what is otherwise the real world. And I, I want us to zoom out from what is just this family story and think about what this means for the wider world. But before we do that, I do want to just think a little bit about the narrator's life and his experience. He is eight years old when his mother dies, and he essentially stops at that point, that the whole rest of his life, uh, you know, at least the next decade and a half, maybe it's 
two and a half decades. He just wants to turn the clock back to eight years old, to the the last time his mother was alive, right? That was the last time that he was healthy and, and functioning, and he's never been able to move on since then. He has been stuck in that moment. And even though you know, he's got a job, he's got a place in society, all he is trying to do is to essentially have what that life was, and like keep it in a, in a snow globe. And he doesn't know how to move on. That's exactly what he's doing. It's like the Packer House method, which we covered on the Gene right. Wolf Literary Podcast. There are elements of this story that also remind me of the Semplica Girl Diaries by George Saunders, which we uh, briefly talked about in our you know authors we probably won't cover on the network conversation. <laughs> but whereas those stories are kind of more satirical or kind of cozy mysteries on some level, uh, at least with the Packer House method has that sort of feel. This is just about arrested development. It is about not being able to move forward. And it is about the dark ways in which this narrator is trying to restore something that even through his own narrative, he cannot escape the darkness and kind of fundamentally evil premise of. And though he's fulfilled by it, as I said, we are left feeling more empty than when we started this story. He is left feeling fulfilled by it. But I think that if we were observing his life from the outside, which we're not doing because we're in his words, we're in his voice, we're in his mind in this story. But if this was our neighbor, you know, some a friend, someone we knew, we would not we would not think that this was okay, that this was that he was doing well. I don't think at all. I think we would be quite disturbed by him. And the father too, right? This is a story about uh, a man whose wife dies and he can't he can't let her go. And so he brings her back as a zombie to live in their house with their two kids. And it, it means that no one is ever able to grieve. The, the process of grieving never stops. That's all he's doing is grieving while drunk in the basement is grieving and grieving and grieving. And he, the father can't move forward. The narrator can't move forward either, though he really is acting as if this zombie, this uh, this reanimated corpse that can't even speak, is actually really his mother. And it's Simon, who is the only person in the house who seems to recognize that this is not right, this is not okay, and, and maybe the only person who wants to move forward tries to by running away. And when he's stymied in that plan, when he can't do it, he moves forward in the only way that he still has any power to do by taking his own life, which is just, I mean, it's just really it's just totally heartbreaking, right? This is a family that needed an intervention here from somebody. Uh, you know, Aunt Helen, obviously not doing it. Uncle Will, you know, I wish that guy had come back, right? But we know he's not. And that's kind of the dread that's really hanging over the story for the, the end of the first, you know, the first section, the first section break we get tells us that Uncle Will is the person who probably should have stepped in to rescue these boys, but he wasn't going to come back. He was not going to do it. Right. And, you know, we also, with regards to Simon, learn that one of those twins that died in the refrigerator was like one of the last kids in the neighborhood that still had Simon over. So that other sense of normalcy, that other family that, that still let their kids play with Simon and be his friend, that's gone from him too. So he's really got no outlets. And what's even more horrifying as we learn what the narrator has done at the end of the story is that he didn't even let Simon go. 
not entirely. And, and that, that too is really heartbreaking and tragic. Um, the implication, I think, is that he brought Simon and his father back. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's that's definitely clear about the the father. I do wonder sort of about the timeline of of Simon there because right the narrator would still only have been 9 or maybe 10 I guess at that point and didn't have, you know, 25% of an income to give as a tithe. But I uh, maybe on that note actually, let's let's talk about the the world here. I want to start just with the family though again, maybe we'll use this as kind of our transition point. And and the question that I have for you Brandon is really just about the setup of this. Do you think that the father understood, right? When he comes to this agreement with a resurrectionist, when he, I don't know, goes to their community center or calls them up on the phone or however it is that he contacted them, when he when he does that, when he contacts them to say, yeah, um, I will pay you 25% of my income forever uh, for you to resurrect my wife. Do you think at that point, the father understood that his wife was not really going to be a fully functioning person following this resurrection or or was he tricked in some way? I, you know, I don't have access to all of the resurrectionist pamphlet materials. They're, they're difficult to come <laughs> by. Um, but it seems as though he was sold a false bill of goods here. Their description of the mother as having had a light stroke or being feeble from coming home from the hospital really seems to undersell the situation. You use the word zombie and that's the exact right word. There is a, a, passage in the story that I didn't narrate about the narrator coming home from work and seeing a fatal car accident and seeing all these people, they, he says, have just surrounded it. And I'm not sure if that's the resurrectionists or the undead, but it seems to me as though the resurrectionists are kind of winning and the undead are kind of roaming the world a little bit. And this is an organization then that is really profiting off of people's grief and willing to take any version of their loved one back regardless of what it means. And even though there's evidence of how brutal this is for people or how different than advertised these undead people are when they come home, it's not slowing down the growth of this organization. I mean, they're able to build a uh, special boarding school and a university and community centers. I mean, they are winning against those who might find uh, the resurrected dead un distasteful. Yeah, that, that's really where I want to go next with thinking about this. Extrapolate out broadly to the rest of society. First, I'll say, I think you're absolutely right. I read that as uh, those were undead people who were gathering by that car accident. Uh, something that, that Simmons weaves into the story almost just as an impression that he gives us without spelling it out, is that the undead are themselves fairly fascinated by death and, and dead things, other dead people as well, uh, which is just inherently very, very creepy. But certainly, right, by the time that we get to Simon killing himself, which is, you know, two two summers later, I think, uh, here, at, at this point, I, I would expect that people everywhere must realize that they're not actually going to get their loved ones back. They're getting this animated shell of the person. Why are people doing that then? It's such a good question. I mean, one other thing I, I, I wonder if we can draw from this story is these interludes, these brief interludes with the dead children 
that keep on popping up in the story. You know, the twins is the one I used. Uh, I, I brought up with re- relation to Simon because one of them was his friend. I, I wonder if the families are bringing these people back, and that's kind of an unspoken assumption in in the writing of this story. It's really not clear. But I wonder if it's just become a kind of, I don't know, almost normal practice, especially when it comes to kids and teenagers, but then they don't grow anymore. And is that why the schools are empty? You know, we don't really quite get a sense of why they're growing, uh, of why this organization is growing. Certainly with adults, I think you'd, it would be hard to bring an adult back uh, and, and, and imagine them as the, the person they once were. But I wonder if the reason why we have these interludes about children dying is to allude to a kind of parental grief that is maybe winning out over other sorts, though I'm not sure. Um, But it's clear that the resurrectionist movement or religion is very, very successful. Let's talk about that. Are the resurrectionists a religion? I think they've got to be. I mean, they're maybe a cult, maybe the kind of normal, like the ordinary way we use cult today would probably describe them better. Uh, The narrator is clearly fully indoctrinated into this cult. He certainly feels that they've benefited him, that they've looked after him in some way. And all they're asking for return is maybe that he works for them for the rest of his life. But I think there there is a real cult aspect to it. The use of the word tithe, the uh, appropriating of religious language, indicates that they are operating on some level that is quasi-religious. Yeah, I, I absolutely think this is a religion of of some sort. You know, we do just tend to use the word cult to mean a religion that creeps us out. I think from our perspective as readers, this definitely is a religion that creeps us out. So I think cult is uh, the appropriate term to use from our perspective. But I'm not sure in the world that it is. The sense I get is that this is a religion that is taken actually quite seriously because otherwise, right, there wouldn't be this many undead around. And certainly by the time that the narrator is writing this down, it seems like there are a lot of them. Uh, At the beginning of the story, which is at least 15 years previously, uh, and and maybe more than that, maybe, you know, two, two and a half decades, it's clear that the narrator's family is the only family in their community that at this point has taken advantage of this this technology, this technique, whatever it is that can reanimate corpses. uh, and, And and then also maintain them, to continue to keep them reanimated. That's what the tithing ostensibly is for, is the continued maintenance of this reanimated corpse of your your loved one. But it's clear that this family is the first in their community to do this. By the end of the story, it's clear that lots of people are doing this. Perhaps not a majority of families have, have done this yet, but many of them have. They are, not, uh, they are no longer a small minority of people. And yeah, all of the language that Simmons uses about this organization is religious, right? Certainly the word tithe, but then also you just you just can't call people resurrectionists without invoking images of, of a, a type of Christianity gone bad here, although Christ Christianity never at all used in this in this story. So what the resurrectionist relationship to that actually is, is totally unclear here. But I really have the sense that this is a religion that is growing very quickly and and fast becoming like mainstream. And that's really kind of the the nightmare scenario that Simmons is is 
painting for us here is uh, you know a, a world very much like ours except that no one ever actually dies that we're all just that when we do die our loved ones just reanimate our corpses and the world is becoming crowded with corpses you can almost imagine that this line of thinking, these resurrectionists, if they do have a relationship to Christianity, are maybe not so different than the kind of Christian Zionist movement that is trying on some levels, well, <laughs> to re like rebuild the temple of Solomon in Jerusalem and things like that, all in an attempt to like help God move the apocalypse along. Um, and this resurrection of the dead is a sign of Christ's return in the apocalyptic literature of the New Testament. And so, you know, you can almost make that same sort of connection that these are people who are thinking that uh, if they can kind of create the image that this stuff is happening, that they'll be helping the apocalypse along. And ultimately what the Christian apocalypse is for is to create like a a new heaven and a new earth where like we live in the kingdom with God or whatever. So uh, you know, I, I can almost make that same sort of draw that same sort of connection uh, between the type of that type of thinking in certain strains of Christianity that is about helping God achieve the apocalypse. Well, I think that there's a good writing prompt there, right? I mean, let's be clear. This story works super well because it is so tightly focused on this one family and is told from the perspective of an eight-year-old child. That's really why this story works so well. It's, it's you know, why it functions as, as horror rather actually than a type of dystopic science fiction. And it is what makes it so uh, emotional, right? So full of pathos. But... These are, but there is this world out here that I think is really, really interesting. And I, you know, I would encourage uh, the writers in our audience. There are a lot of you out there to to take this as a writing prompt. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Brandon is practically imagining a sermon here. I think <laughs> at the Resurrectionist <laughs> Community Center, and that, that would be a really great story, really great thing to read. So I, I would love to encourage people to to take this as a writing prompt and expand what this world is. I, I have a great dream to uh, follow. Herman Melville in his uh, ability to weave <laughs> sermons into pieces of literature. It's uh, it's certainly a literary form I have not mastered yet. <laughs> yeah, well, there is not, there is definitely not enough of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with that. <laughs> All right. Well, if we are, uh, I think if we are dreaming of becoming Herman Melville, which, I don't know. That's a, that's almost as terrifying as Simon's dream in this, in this story, I think. <laughs> but uh, I think that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. I want to thank the person who nominated this story, uh, who, who, won our review writing competition for one, taking the time to write those reviews and then also nominating such an excellent story for us to cover. Yeah. Wow. I mean, this is an awesome, awesome story. It really took over my week. It was, uh, it was hard to get outside of this story, but in a in a really good, really powerful way. So I'm really glad that we had an opportunity to read this just tremendously awesome story. And yeah, again, thank you so much for taking the time to write that review. Thank you to everyone who took time to write not just one review. People were writing reviews of all our shows on multiple platforms. We really, really, really appreciate that effort. And if you've not yet written a review, especially one on Apple Podcast, we would love it if you would, because hey, we do have this contest ongoing, right? That is going to get us to 
to cover the Call of Cthulhu, which I'm super eager to do. So, <laughs> But you are holding that in your hands, uh, dear listeners. So please let us loose to go cover that story. And hey, while you are on the internet, uh, head on over to the Clay Temple forums or stop by our subreddit. Let us know what you thought of The River Styx Runs Upstream. And hey, if you've got some fan fiction, if you've taken us up on that prompt, uh, we would love to love to read that. So please do share that with us. Next time, we're going to be back with The Sunken Land by Fritz Leiber. Very excited to get our first Fritz Leiber story. Super important person in the development of, of sword and sorcery. And then also, therefore, D&D and role-playing games in general. That's going to be a lot of fun to do. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.